In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. And welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews, and I'm joined today by Weeds co-host Jerusalem Demsis. Hello. And special guest Emily Rong Zhang. Hi. Emily is a former Scadden Fellow at the ACLU Voting Rights Project, and she's currently a PhD candidate in political science at Stanford, and she's a bona fide expert on the empirical social science and the law of voting rights. So we thought she was a perfect person to bring on to talk about what's been happening with voting rights in America. So this past week, the Senate rejected rules changes that would have allowed it to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, as well as the Freedom to Vote Act, which were two of the biggest pieces of voting legislation that the Senate has considered in many years and would have done a wide variety of things from combating gerrymandering to reducing barriers to voting in various states and was a a real central push for the Democratic leadership that came up short. Before we dive into the details here and the complexities of the law and political science of voting, Jerusalem, can you break down what these bills that were up for votes would actually do? Totally. So I think like many people who were following this debate, I completely lost the plot on how many different bills there actually were. (laughs) So H.R. 1 has been around since like 2019. And that's the big one that a lot of people kind of know about. It's called the For the People Act. And there were a bunch of different pieces in that. It included things like voting accessibility. It included ethics in the federal government, big money in in elections, election security, and gerrymandering of the House of Representatives. So it was a big bill and it was around before January 6th, but obviously it was really picked up in the aftermath of that last year as people were obviously Um, you know, rightfully horrified by the events that took place that day. That uh, did not pass. (laughs) Um, And uh, there were basically two different kinds of bills that end up coming out over the last year. There's the Freedom to Vote Act, and then there's the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. The John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act does a bunch of things as well, but like one of the big things that it did was trying to restore the preclearance requirement, which was part of the Voting Rights Act that had been kind of really decimated after the Shelby decision from the Supreme Court. So that passed the House of Representatives, and that's the bill that very recently in the Senate failed because um, the filibuster exists, which we all knew. <laughs> so um, the Freedom to Vote Act has not been brought to a vote. It's the the big part of that that I think is really relevant for this discussion is that it lets election administrators sue if they're removed for reasons other than gross negligence or misconduct. So basically, as um, Vox's Andrew Prokop has reported, it, it provides a new way to allow the courts to step in to a loophole that some people were trying to exploit after the 2020 presidential election to try to overturn those results. So those are the kind of like the three big areas. There's a bunch of different things in all of them, but maybe it makes sense to start with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which actually came up for a vote recently and did fail. Um, So 
Preclearance and the Voting Rights Act was obviously a very big deal for Democrats for a long time. After Shelby, everyone kind of thought that that was the demise of small D Democratic voting uh, rights in the United States. So how important is it that we get that back in there? Because there seem to be disparate like kind of ideas on whether or not it's important to do preclearance again at the federal level, whether that's actually going to get us to a place with equitable access to the ballot. So, Emily, what are your thoughts there? My view is that it's it's extremely important. And the reason I think this is because of everything that's happened since Shelby County was decided. Um, The litigation landscape has been very, very active. And my former employer, um, the ACLU Voting Rights Project, was only one among many other groups who were litigating these cases. Um, In some states, you literally got an omnibus voter suppression bill passed the eve of the decision, making voting much harder in various states like North Carolina, Texas, and the like. Um, And that experience, I think, shows that there is an appetite to pass the kinds of um, procedures that would have been precleared under preclearance and now are um, are now sort of permissible and, um, you know, possible to pass. And states appear to be more than willing through the litigation to spend vast amounts of resources defending these practices, um, the same ones that would not have been precleared under preclearance. So my sense is that it's, it's, it's extremely important. My understanding of the way preclearance worked before the Shelby decision in 2013 was there was a set of states chosen using various criteria that any changes in voting procedures or voting laws uh, had to go through the Justice Department, which would then sort of judge whether they created unreasonable burdens. And so it was a way for ex-Jim Crow states to be held accountable and have some supervision from the Justice Department to prevent them from trying to shut Black Americans and, and other minorities from the ballot. Would the John Lewis bill, it, it restores the preclearance system. Does it do anything to change sort of what kinds of things the Justice Department could strike down? Does it does it get more expansive in, in what they would be able to do to states that are covered under this? Yeah. So, I mean, just a, a step back about why preclearance is so unbelievably important. Part of it is not just that states are passing laws at the state level. It's a recognition that what makes voting hard for Americans depends very much on the ground, on local election administrations and the like. That because the process is so localized, tiny little changes people are making at the local level, given our history with Jim Crow, you know, we know that there can be lots of effects on individual voters that may not be picked up, you know, by all sorts of other protections that they exist in the system. So that's part of why the preclearance regime is so powerful. There are some changes. So there are some presumptive acts that local jurisdictions can take that presumptively trigger some kind of preclearance. So there's something known as a sort of practice-based coverage. If you engage in these practices that we know are typically associated with attempts to dilute minority voting strength and minority ability to elect, those practices will all uniformly come under um, preclearance. Then there is a different formula for what states are subject to preclearance. Now, that's a huge deal because the Shelby County decision didn't say preclearance, bad idea, unconstitutional. That decision said the way that you have devised the formula is outdated and inappropriate for all these reasons. Therefore, you can't apply preclearance based on the formula that that was in the um, act itself. So that has also been reformed under the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Roberts in um, the Shelby County decision, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Emily, but in in that decision, he says that he'd given Congress a bunch of time to try to reform the preclearance requirements and which states would actually be subject to them. And it was like kind of congressional 
delay and inability to get things done that led him th- led us there. And now again, we're dealing with the same exact problem as we're trying to as we're trying to reform the bill. So it, it does kind of seem like this is something that needs congressional action. Like that you cannot expect the courts to solve this on their own. Or can we see something actually happen through the judicial system because there's a ton of litigation going on right now? No, absolutely. It needs to come from Congress. You know, the court would not have reformed the formula on its own. The court is saying, and here there's, I mean, folks criticized the decision at the time because it said, look, you just have to come up with a different formula, Congress. I'm happy to take a look at whatever new formula you come up with, but you got to come up with it for me to then judge whether I think it's, you know, the court thinks it's constitutional. And obviously, given historic, you know, at least in recent years, sort of the kind of impasse in Congress that was a kind of empty gesture from the court because it was really hard to get consensus on a federal voting rights bill. Can you talk us through like the top things that actually need to be done in your perspective that actually need to be fixed in order to make sure that our our voting is actually reflecting the will of the people? Because people talk about anything from election administration to abolishing the Senate. So what what actually what actually needs to be done here? Well, that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, in part because the threats have really changed. So following the introduction of the voter ID law in Indiana, then with Shelby County, vote denial became a much more important modern problem, one that the VRA had largely solved. And then we have longstanding problems with redistricting, you know, this sort of conflict of interest problem of politicians drawing maps. And we saw a very drastic situation, you know, a case of that in the last redistricting cycle, um, when you had state legislatures drawing some of the very worst maps we'd ever seen. So I would say these are two like kind of the big sort of flooding problem that, you know, we were dealing with really pressing issues that had, you know, really become very, you know, very scary kind of in the middle of the last decade. And then we got the all of the things that happened in the past election, you know, for instance, the loopholes in the Electoral Account Act, you know, problems we didn't even know were problems, you know, loopholes that we never understood to be loopholes are suddenly now issues. And then combined with the onslaught of attacks um, of election administrators at the local level, combined with the potentiality of state legislatures to subvert election outcomes, we're just we're just being hit with all sorts of different problems. And, you know, we have to address all of them. And there are obviously political questions about which one to prioritize, but they're all huge, terrifying problems. Can you give me an example of uh, some examples of policies that have become popular in in states that are restricting uh, access to voting in recent years that that might have been subject to preclearance if if the John Lewis Act had made it through? My my sense is that in 1965, preclearance was for things like literacy tests that are like very obvious canonical examples of trying to disenfranchise poor people um, and people of color. What are some of the the big ticket items that preclearance could have gotten rid of, but but won't without the John Lewis Act? A big group of these policies might be described in other circumstances as just kind of resource allocation decisions. So we've seen a lot of controversy over polling place changes and polling place closures. Depending on the place, you might think an election administration office is just trying to make sure that it's got the right offices in the right places, given how much money it has to run elections. But we know that in certain parts of the country, those decisions are extremely politicized and often have racially discriminatory impacts. These are the kinds of really micro level decisions that are really hard for folks to catch at a national level, um, but are keenly felt by the folks on the ground and would have been pre-cleared and subject to kind of review by DOJ before they would have been allowed to happen. We saw some of this happen in the last election in Georgia, for instance. So we did really see attempts to 
make changes to, you know, very seemingly kind of mundane, normal, usual election administration decisions that, you know, would have really hurt folks um, who were trying to vote on the ground. You know, one thing uh, that you said earlier that I um, that I've been thinking about a lot is this idea that uh, we didn't even know that some of the problems with the Electoral Count Act were problems until they really came up earlier this year. And, you know, the Electoral Count Act for listeners, it's, it's an obscure part <laughs> of this process, which basically was was created in order to figure out if there's a dispute between a state's slate of electors about what the state's uh, electoral votes should actually go towards, there needs to be some way of adjudicating that. And the history here is that like in the 1876 between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes, um, they both didn't have a clear majority of electors on election day. And there was, I mean, this is post-reconstruction or this is during reconstruction. There's tons of white supremacist violence. There's election fraud going on. And so they're trying to figure out a way to adjudicate this. It ends up being really bad. Republicans have to withdraw federal troops from the South to end reconstruction in order to get Democrats' acceptance of the uh, final result. And then in the following couple of, uh, of elections, there's also similar kinds of problems. So they end, end up coming up with this um, system that ends up being you know, pretty underground until it's exploited again this past year to try to force Mike Pence to, to step in and do something after Donald Trump loses the election. And you know, there are two ways that I started thinking about this. Like one, right, is that like focusing on these procedural things is a waste of time because the root of the issue is that there's this sense that largely democratic victory is illegitimate and that, you know, they're going to find some loopholes. Like you can close this loophole, they'll find something else. Like you could not have actually preempted this. You wouldn't have known to like think about this obscure law. Or two, you know, the other way I've been thinking about it is that there's there's always going to be fringe ideas. And in, especially in the age of social media and on the Internet, those fringes are easily going to be able to mobilize into like real political coalitions. And if that's constant, then all you can do, right, is try to reform procedure, even if you're trying to play catch up in the back end and trying to make sure that these loopholes are closed. Um, that's really all you can do to make sure that these threats don't actually become um, realized. So I, I don't know if you have thoughts there about what the best way is to even conceptualize this, whether the root of the problem is that these procedures or, or these loopholes exist or the root of the problem is that there's like something fundamentally broken with democracy that needs to be addressed? Yeah, I, I agree with both of those sentiments. I mean, I end up saying, look, these are loopholes we didn't know could be exploited by a bad faith actor that now we know is the kind of loophole that those bad faith actors are looking at. Why not close them um, to the extent that they have revealed themselves to be of interest to the folks we're worried about? On the other hand, you're right in the sense that just you know, closing those loopholes may not be sufficient to remove the bad faith of the bad faith actors to look for loopholes like these in the first place. So I, I share very much a kind of similar sentiment. That is, it seems it seems like it's worth trying to fill these holes, um, but there are reasons to believe even if we do, we may still encounter other creative ways to cause mischief. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to try to talk about sort of ranking problems in, in American voting and democracy and and sort of how to go about tackling them in the aftermath of, of what's happened in the Senate. So stay tuned. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. And we're back. So we've been discussing with Emily Rong Zhang the failure of voting rights legislation uh, last week in the Senate. And so much of the debate there was bound up with the filibuster, that by some counts, you had 50 votes to change voting law, to to pass the John Lewis Act, to to pass the uh, Freedom to Vote Act. But what you didn't have is the support of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema to change the filibuster such that they could pass anything with only 50 votes. And there's there's something of a history here with with voting rights and, and the filibuster. Um, I don't know if, if Jerusalem or, or Emily, if you want, wanted to say anything about that, but it seems like a piece of a pattern. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'll say is that it, it seems really weird that this all played out like this. I mean, part of this, we talked briefly about this on our recent show with um, Rob Meyer, seems to have been a reaction to the fact that the Build Back Better bill was sort of stalled and they they needed to, to do something else or they were kind of bored with that. I'm not really sure, not trying to cast any aspersions here, but it was very confusing how it all sort of came about. So, I mean, Andrew Prokop, fellow Vox uh, writer, he had a Democratic strategist tell him on background, quote, has there ever been a legislative campaign campaign this dumb, doomed, and disastrous from the beginning. And that seems to be the kind of like overwhelming sentiment here. I mean, it's happened last year too, even before this big push where Dimitri Melhorn, who is a confidant to Reid Hoffman, who's a big Democratic funder, um, you know, there was this memo that Politico uh, was able to to leak that said, I, you know, he said, I would love to have nonpartisan redistricting and automatic vote registration, but I have not heard a plausible path to getting that into law. We cannot remain silent forever as more and more donor meetings end up becoming exercises in unreality. So this has been going on for months that like people have been pointing out that like there's not really a path here. It's not really clear to me why this is happening. Obviously, when it came down to the wire, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin yet again reaffirmed that they were not willing to nuke the filibuster for, for voting rights. And, and, you know, that was not a surprise to anyone. Most reporting showed that everyone was aware of this, that Democratic strategists were aware of this, that Congress members and things were aware of this. The justification, it appears that we're getting for why this is important. The most interesting one that I heard that I'm still mulling over, so I don't know if you guys have thoughts on, is is something that Bernie Sanders actually said. By not bringing legislation to the floor of the last year, um, Sanders is worried that they're, quote, letting the GOP get away with murder. He says this on CNN yesterday. So what we are talking about is what the American people want. And I think when you bring bills on the floor, we have allowed the Republicans to get away with murder. They haven't had to vote on anything. Now, if they want to vote against lowering the cost of prescription drugs, expanding Medicare, dealing with childcare, dealing with housing, let them vote. So he, he basically says the idea is you have to have Republicans vote against these things to hold them accountable um, on these issues. And, you know, obviously you have to weigh that against the, the kind of demoralizing effect of, you know, 
bringing things to the floor and then just failing repeatedly, especially after you've told voters again and again that democracy is at stake and that's what we're going to lose here. So the politics of this seem very unclear to me. Um, It seems like potentially it's just downstream of Build Back Better. It seems potentially that there's some kind of theory of the case here that uh, Schumer and Sanders and others have, which is that it's important to mobilize people against the attempts at uh, fixing this problem. But, you know, as Emily, you've talked about, it's not really clear that a lot of the things that are in these bills are actually addressing the very core worry that many Democrats on the ground might have around repeating January 6th? Well, I, I mean, on the policy content, you know, there is nothing new in these bills. There are composites of lots of things that everyone has been saying we need for a very long time. Now, the politics of whether, you know, that can get passed and what the issues are, you know, that's the separate issue. But certainly there are all important fixes to longstanding problems we are having and I think the question is just strategically, what is the best way to pursue these goals, you know, not just today, but kind of in the longer term? We need them at some point. Um, and how do you make that happen? You know, that's that's the operative kind of strategic question. Dylan, do you think it's like this is a messaging bill or what, what's your read on what's going on here? I mean, I, I agree with Emily that that all the things in this bill are things that I, I wanted to have happen. So after the Supreme Court decided that it wasn't its job to combat partisan gerrymandering, it seemed like there was no national solution to the problem without Congress. And we probably won't have a majority in both houses in favor of, of major redistricting reform for another decade or so after this, if the distance between Biden and, and Obama and Obama and Clinton is, is any indication. And so I totally understood making a push for it right now. Like all, all the substance is, is uh, stuff I support. I think one thing I have of trouble reasoning through, and that I think some of your research, Emily, can help us reason through, is if we can't get all of this, what are the most important subcomponents? So if there is a deal to be made at some point that is not all of, of HR1 or all of um, even sort of the more recent versions, do you want to prioritize fighting gerrymandering? Do you want to prioritize preclearance? Do you want to prioritize campaign finance reform? And my sense is that there's still a lot of disagreements among political scientists about which of those would have the biggest impacts and also about what the right outcome variable is. Because I, I don't know what outcome variable I want to maximize with, with campaign finance reform, but it seems like something where the scale of the impact is really important. Yeah, and I think it's it's a very tough decision. I'm speaking not just in my capacity as a political scientist, but as an attorney, you know, putting provisions that would curb partisan gerrymandering with language that the Supreme Court could then interpret in however way it sees fit may result in a null legislation as well. So there are lots of variables to keep, you know, in play here. It's not just a question of resources, priorities, effects, but also the likelihood of a legislation to survive legal scrutiny. Provisions that, for instance, more closely mirror the National Voter Registration Act, commonly known as Motor Voter, which is presumed, I think, constitutional. I can't remember its exact history now, but, you know, its constitutionality is never, I don't think, is in question, at least not today. Provisions that mirror those may be more likely to survive legal scrutiny and therefore more, you know, one might be more inclined to push those um, than others where, you know, partisan gerrymandering, for instance, where we know that there may be resistance coming from the court. So I think these are really tough calls um, where it's not just juggling kind of impact, but also, um, you know, what would likely happen to the legislation. 
something I think that's interesting is that there seems to be, and we'll get into this more in the next segment, but there's something that you've written about in the past, which is that there's there's a there's a symbiosis in voting rights where there's a bunch of people doing social science, there's a bunch of people doing, you know, actual litigation, and then there's the people writing legislation and and election officials that are a part of this. And can you talk a little bit about how those need to like work together to actually get these outcomes? Because one thing that I'm noticing here is that it feels like what's happened with a lot of these bills, especially, you know, last year, before a lot of the changes were actually made to address what happened on January 6th, is that it was a grab bag that was kind of written in by a lot of lawyers, people, maybe folks at the Brennan Center who had really good impulses around things that need to be fixed around uh, the general election administration, but were not maybe very well aware of the political side of things or even the legislative side of things and, you know, missed things like, for instance, opposition from Black uh, Congress members who were worried about breaking up Democratic vote shares. So the symbiosis seems really important and it's something that you've thought about a lot. Yeah, that's a good question. Not maybe so much in the context of, you know, putting together a federal voting rights package. It's very clear, for instance, looking at each of these bills, often the Supreme Court opinion, it is written to address. You know, so for instance, preclearance clearly directed at Shelby County, the provisions on vote denial under the Voting Rights Act clearly targeted at Brinovich. So you certainly see that kind of dialogue that's happening kind of inner branch between Congress and the Supreme Court in this manner. There is also some dialogue, for instance, um, between social scientists and lawyers you'll see in the bill, especially in the portion I see on the partisan gerrymandering front. If you look at the text of the act prohibiting partisan gerrymandering, a lot of the measures um, and the ways we think about how you know a partisan gerrymander is a partisan gerrymander borrows um, a lot from kind of the political science side of things. And then, of course, the reform bills to improve election administration election day registration as a really important reform and the like. That's built on years and decades of political science research that says those are a really good idea, that there's unanimity in the academic community about certain practices like those that, you know, would really be the right things a democracy um, you know, should <laughs> implement. So I see sort of lots of dialogues in, in those ways, um, but I'm not as sort of well informed on the sort of political side of, of that dialogue. Do you have any sense, because obviously you're, you're a lawyer yourself, like it feels like social science, it plays a large role in legal decisions. Like you'll see it being cited by judges and, and by lawyers quite frequently, but often not from a place of like a ton of expertise on the social science or which research methods are out of date and which ones are, you know, up to snuff um, by current standards. And I, I just wonder, do you have a sense of like how that actually ends up evolving? Like, did you expect to see more of an acceptance around what types of things are actually um, voter suppressive and which ones are not based on social science methods? Or is this something that's pretty much dominated at this point by, it feels like, a lot of uh, uh, political sentiments around what things are important to defend? Really hard to sort of answer that question, I think, sort of globally. Um, Mm -hmm. What's always been really interesting to me about voter ID laws um, is that what academics have been disputing over is only one part of, I think, a kind of two-factor analysis one should be thinking about when thinking about an election law and whether it's voter suppressive. On the one hand, there's obviously the what is the effect on voters? You know, does it make voting too onerous? And that's the part that we've had tons of debate about. What is the actual turnout effect of voter ID laws? But for me, what's odd is while that debate is inconclusive, contested and voluminous, um, the other side of the consideration, which is what is the point of imposing voter ID laws? Is there a compelling state interest that justifies the burdens it imposes on voters. That is much less 
discussed, um, but but kind of clearly lacking in this particular policy area. The two common ones that are given for the reason for imposing voter ID are it prevents fraud, and the second one is it boosts voter confidence. But on the fraud front, it's a particular kind of fraud. It's pre- you know it's preventing in-person voter fraud. If I were the type to consider committing election fraud, this is not the kind of fraud that I would engage in being a relatively rational and risk-averse individual. It's not a very good alibi, Emily. <laughs> no, it, yes. And there's also a reason, I mean, that's a precisely the reason why I would never do it. You would have to present yourself in person to a polling location and you only get to cast one vote. I also can't impersonate a lot of other people. I can't impersonate either of you, um, given, you know, who I am and how I look. So, you know, the the justification for voter ID laws is preventing voter fraud has always been very, very weak, both empirically and just theoretically. And the second reason that's commonly been given for voter ID laws is it boosts voter confidence that, you know, even if it doesn't actually prevent fraud, if some people feel safer that there is such a law in place, they're more likely to vote. And I think the question to ask there is, is that expectation reasonable given how unlikely in-person voter fraud actually is? So that has always, I think, seemed to me to be the, the major problem. And I think there may be issues in seeding ground on that on that issue. If we start not asking serious questions about whether election laws are implemented to serve an actual legitimate purpose in elections, we can get to things like what you're seeing coming out of the state of Florida, potentially, what's been discussed by a gubernatorial um, candidate in Georgia, where you start coming up with solutions like having a roving election police force to solve what problem? You know, um, so it does seem really important to ask pretty, pretty tough questions of election officials for why they would choose to implement laws that make it harder for, for folks to vote. That's a good transition to our our third segment. So we're going to take a quick break. uh, But when we're back, uh, we're going to have a white paper segment. And in a historic first, Emily wrote the white paper. (laughs) So we will be discussing it with the author for the first time. Uh, So stay tuned. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is... Who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? And we're back. Before the break, we were talking about voter ID as sort of an example of a regulation that reduces access to, to voting. And Emily, you had an excellent article uh, entitled questioning questions in the law of democracy, what the debate over voter ID laws affects teaches us about asking the right questions. And what I loved about this is that it's it's intervening in an existing sort of debate among both social scientists and lawyers. The social science question is, does requiring voter ID actually reduce turnout or otherwise sort of change who votes in a significant way? And that feeds into the question in the courts of whether voter ID laws are acceptable but one point you make is that sort of does it affect turnout might not be the right question. So walk us through sort of what your intention in writing the piece was and, and sort of what the debate you were intervening in was. Yeah, I mean, I think in part the focus on whether a law impacts turnout is itself perhaps a symptom of the kind of problems we're facing in our democracy. That is, we are living election to election as opposed to thinking about democratic health as a whole. So the question we seem to be asking is, 
does it reduce voter turnout in discrete elections, therefore affecting who's getting elected, as opposed to do we have a process of voting that is equally open and accessible to members of our society? And asking questions particularly about generally already a very privileged set of the electorate. The folks who typically participate are people who typically have voter ID. Um, that is empirically true, although there is obviously still you know, folks who regularly participate who don't, but they're a relatively small part of the population. But the broader problem, I think, appears to be and, and should be, is it easy, you know, is the process open to folks? Um, and we know empirically there are lots of people out there who don't have ID. The fact that they have historically not participated strike me as not any less reason to care about the fact that now these laws make it virtually impossible for them to participate. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that uh, gets me kind of uh, confused about this debate is like, obviously, it seems and you, you point this out in your paper that there's a very small effect of voter ID laws on actual turnout. I think you say it's roughly around 2% is what we're getting um, from the implementation of these laws. You know, there's obviously a good conversation to be had about whether 2% really is small. Obviously, in, you know, in Florida, the 2000 win to George W. Bush was by 0.009 percentage points. David Perdue's margin if he had been improved by 0.27, he would have averted a runoff and with John Ossoff and Republicans would still control the Senate. So, you know, there, there's that conversation. But like, even if you buy this idea that it's pretty small and it's not going to change elections, I guess my question really is, is that it appears to me that's because fundamentally there is a set of society that just never votes whatsoever. And one model I have for why this group of people rarely ever votes is because in aggregate, all of these different requirements that are stacked up on top of one another have led to the point where it's just too difficult, too annoying to vote. And often these are folks who are much more marginalized in general from the political process, um, not just as a result of this, but in part as a result of these problems. And while removing voter ID or adding voter ID does not change anything, if you just study that one effect, I think in aggregate, if you have a political system that is treating voting as kind of the, the privilege of this subset of the population that is often middle to upper middle class um, and wealthy and, and more... Um, you know, engage politically, that that itself is the, is the main problem rather than just does voter ID increase or decrease voter turnout? Yeah, that's absolutely sort of where I land as well. Although I should be, you know, more precise about the kind of 2% effect. You know, that's certainly not what I'm claiming it, it actually is at. In fact, you know, there are now discrete papers written on, you know, discrete states and circumstances estimating precisely what that effect is. Um, and that's often a number that's much, much smaller than 2%. Although, you know, some of them are limited to various contexts, like a primary election, which you might think would behave differently than a general and the like. So I just want to be clear about that. But yes, on the broader point, it is possible for, as you say, the, the set of the population that generally does not participate, the voter ID laws may not be the reason they do not participate, because there are lots of reasons why they may not participate. But among those hosts of reasons, if one of them is you know, something that the state is doing as opposed to folks' individual circumstances or whatever, um, there may be reasons to be concerned about voter suppression laws being a reason why folks um, can't or you know, will never be able to participate. One sort of thing that your paper does is sort of set a new agenda for, for social scientists and trying to work through these issues, uh, since, as you know, voter ID laws can disenfranchise people who don't show up in turnout statistics. Merely reporting the effects on turnout ignores like the costs that people who do turn out pay from, from various interventions. What does a better kind of social science that's more useful to unpacking these questions look like and, and sort of how, do, how can we get there? I wouldn't go, you know, that far in terms of how bold the claim, you know, is. I, I do think there are lots of other ways that we have learned about the costs of these laws, you know, not necessarily in the social science literature. 
For instance, in the context of any of these cases challenging these laws, there will be a plaintiff or two who are going to, you know, who are going to be these exceptional people who vote no matter what. These are the highly <laughs> admirable folks where when they testify in the courtroom, there is a hushed reverence because there is no better <laughs> democracy person than that plaintiff in the room. And this person will tell you what it takes to comply with the law. That's very revealing of the costs imposed by various restrictions. Um, it's very telling of the kind of hurdles one has to jump through if one is in a particular circumstance. So that's one way in which I think we learn a lot about the effects of these laws. Um, community organizations, often who serve as plaintiffs in these cases or not, maintain business records that show how hard it is to do their work given barriers um, you know, produced by these laws, also really informative about the effects. Um, so a part of it, I think, is just there are lots of ways we are learning about the effects of these laws the social science evidence is, you know, shedding one kind of important light, um, but there are all these other ways for us to learn really useful and telling um, impacts of, of these restrictions. I would love for you to tease that out a little bit because you do that in the paper really well, which is this distinction between vote suppression and voter suppression. So can you talk a little bit about that and why it's important to kind of think about which one of these things we're actually trying to address? So I think the kind of vote suppression is the kind of turnout question, which is how many votes are we losing from the election as a result of law A, B, or C? You know, if you're really interested in kind of whether voters are being suppressed, I think the question to ask is what kind of orientation the laws change of one's inclination to participate, given that this is, you know, a part of the landscape. There is, you know, good work trying to shed light on that instance. There's Work coming out of, for instance, Michigan, a state that doesn't have a strict voter ID law, but voters are confused. They think because it's a voter ID law, they hear about voter ID laws more generally across the country, and they make assumptions about what it means to comply with that state's voting regime. I think that that's a sort of asking about kind of the voter experience, asking interesting questions about the information voters have access to and the like that that are the kind of important things to know about. And generally thinking about this from the perspective of if someone wants to be a voter, what are the kind of steps, you know, he or she must take? And that I think is the more interesting sort of analysis, yeah, and, and more useful and I think more democracy-centric approach as opposed to a sort of campaign strategist kind of way of thinking about things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's something that the, your paper raised for me in particular is just, I did have this kind of presumption that the way that you measure voter suppression is if like there's smaller turnout. And that's just not actually, that's begging a lot of the questions that are, you should be addressing on, on the front hand. So I guess one, one question I have that we can maybe close with is, is where do you go from here? Maybe the John Lewis Act and the Freedom to Vote Act get revived later in this Congress. And maybe Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema change their mind on the filibuster. But if they don't, it seems like things get kicked to the courts or get kicked to the states. What should people who are concerned about ensuring the right to vote be be doing and what kind of things should they be following at, at the state or court level as the sort of next stage in this fight? Yeah, it really depends, I think, for folks working at the state level, what those policy windows and opportunities are. You know, we saw that in basically, you know, across the last decade in places that had favorable legislatures. Um, passed lots of favorable voting laws, election day registration, vote by mail and the like, in places where a ballot initiative process was available um, to take redistricting out of the hands of legislatures. We saw a big independent redistricting commission movement. Um, so all of those, you know, will really depend on what window of opportunity is presented at the at the state level. Just to kind of close the loop on, you know, access to the ballot, one big reform agenda, I think, is, you know, as 
we've seen through election day registration, same day registration, automatic voter registration, election day as a holiday. All of this, I think the goal is to present some presumption or expectation that you as a citizen would participate and vote in a democracy. And the more the state does to send that message of this is the kind of thing you would do because you are a citizen in a democracy, you know, seems like the kind of progress we need. Um, It should be thought of as completely normal, expected and desirable that people should vote in, in in our system of government. Uh, an anodyne take that is actually quite controversial. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, my intellectual journey on this has been sort of small brain idea. It should be a lot easier to vote. Big brain idea. Everyone's comparing this to Jim Crow and this seems very qualitatively different to Jim Crow. And is that, are they exaggerating? And then the biggest brain take is it should be a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Part of the reason it's not, so much like Jim Crow is because of the Voting Rights Act. Um, And we're seeing some of the same dynamics that occurred under Jim Crow, you know, since the removal of the Voting Rights Act. And it's very weird how like the partisan valence of this makes it really difficult to have any kind of conversation because, I mean, even if if everyone kind of accepted, well, if us, I guess, in this room, if we accepted this literature as as true, that there's very marginal effects of of voter ID on on turnout, um, it it seems hard to square that with how both Republicans and Democrats kind of respond to voter ID laws. Um, Obviously, the Republicans and many Republicans in in state legislatures have been implementing those um, explicitly as an attempt to to take back power. um, And then Democrats are, are trying enshrine that federally protections against those as as a way of making sure that there's not those oversteps. And, you know, it just it seems like I mean, we this is an uh, irresolvable question, but it's one of those weird ways where like social science clearly affects debates and discourse in a way that's really important. But at the same time, like this is something that you even note your paper for years has been percolating in the social science space, but like has not really trickled down towards either you know, the courts or or the political system in a way that, um, you know, seems seems per, uh, pervasive. So I'm not sure if you have thoughts on, on on why that is, but but it is it is a weird point to me um, to, to come across. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a particular quirk in the voter ID space that is produced by the Supreme Court's decision in Crawford versus Marion County, um, which involved a challenge to Indiana's law that basically wasn't quite ready to be heard by the Supreme Court. And there wasn't a terrible amount of information about who were disenfranchised and the like. In that case, the Supreme Court recognized, as I said, the kind of interests that a state may have in um, adopting an ID law without particularly asking tough questions about whether those justifications actually exist and are you know, met by the law. Um, and because it's a Supreme Court opinion and it has the weight of law, you know, it's really affected, I think, the way that folks have been thinking about these laws and defending them. But it has always been as interesting as that academic debate has been for me, that basic question of why are we doing this has just never really been answered. Thank you again so much to Emily Rongzang and Jerusalem Dempsis for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.
In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.